great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. That was okay, wasn't it? So good, so good. It stirred this question in me, though. We're we're singing, um, this is my father's world, right? We see sunrise, that he spoke into existence and that shouts for joy as it dances its way across the sky today. It might be too cloudy to see it, but it's dancing for joy. And this is my father's world. And yet, I don't know about you, but there's times I open up um, my news feed on my news app, or if you open up your paper, um, however you get your news, and you go, well, God, this is a weird world for you to own. And sometimes it looks like you're way, way, way distant. That Sure, the mountains shout your praise and declare your glory, but where are you when fill in the blank, Right? That that sometimes the darkness seems to hide his face, does it not? And that there are times when the the wrong seems oft so strong that one of the reasons we gather together is to say, he is the ruler yet, Amen? amen? And so we gather today for a different vision of the world that we live in, not one that's less real, but one that's more real, not one that's less observant, but one that's more observant, to recognize that even in the midst of the darkness that our God is at work, and if we lose sight of that, it will dramatically shape the way that we live. So all throughout the scriptures, the God of heaven commands his people to live in such a way that they recognize that he's not distant, but that he's present. And he gives us commands and he gives us um, instruction that align with that reality. So all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've been talking about a different way of life. We've been talking about a way of wisdom, Jesus' wisdom. And sometimes Jesus' wisdom feels crazy, does it not? Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Do good to those who wrong you. Rid your life of anger. I've been searching for an easy message in the Sermon on the Mount, and I haven't found one yet. (laughs) And here's the reason why. Because when God presents his kingdom and his kingdom ethic, it flies in the face of our kingdom. So if we want to hold on to our kingdom, we're going to reject the Jesus kingdom. But in order to accept the Jesus kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, we've got to let go of our own kingdom. And look up at me for a second. That's hard for us. That's hard. It goes against the grain of everything inside of us that wants to hold on. But throughout time, God has been inviting his people to be a different kind of people. And because of that, he's given them different commandments that at times feel really, really strange and really weird. If you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let me show you one such commandment that Jesus alludes to in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll get to in just a moment. 
in Matthew chapter 6, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. But I want to lay some groundwork for us because Jesus is going to give an allusion, a wink and a nod to something every Torah observant Jew in his setting would have understood. They would have known that this is what he was talking about. It was an interesting commandment given to the nation of Israel and one that we cannot find anywhere on record that they actually obeyed. So the nation of Israel does what we often do with what we feel or deem to be crazy laws. We ignore them, don't we? And just so you know, there's a few of those out there still. You can go and research and look on the books to figure out, in the United States, there's some really, really strange laws that are still on the books. You're legally bound to them. We just ignore them. Did you know that in Connecticut, it's illegal to sell a pickle that will not bounce? (laughs) True story. I don't know if that's a four-year degree or a two-year degree to figure out the bouncing of a pickle, but you can't sell a pickle in Connecticut that doesn't bounce. Did you know that in Georgia, it is illegal to eat fried chicken with utensils. You want to do that garbage, you go to Florida. (laughs) Go south for that. In Arkansas, it's illegal to mispronounce the name Arkansas. You want to call it Arkansas, you take that junk elsewhere, okay? In Colorado, we have a number of very, very strange laws still on the books in Colorado. Did you know that in Colorado, it is illegal to lend your vacuum cleaner to your next door neighbor? You can lend it to somebody a few doors down, but not your next door neighbor. Wouldn't that be funny? You just bring your Hoover over just to tempt your next door neighbor. Hey, just wanted to make you not live in the way of Jesus and break the law, right? Busted. Did you know that in in Logan County in Colorado, it is illegal for a man to kiss a woman while she's sleeping? It's illegal. Did you know that in Alamosa, it is illegal for you to shoot a missile at a car? (laughs) Now, a house or a building, feel free, but a car, that's where we draw the line. That's where we draw the line. So what do we do with weird laws? We, We ignore them. Same thing the Israelites did. Here's their weird law. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1. God says this. He says, okay, every seven years, I want you to erase all the debts. Uh, We're zeroing out every account after seven years. It's called the Sabbath year. If somebody owes you something after seven years, zero it out. Now, as someone who has a mortgage on their house, I go, wow, that doesn't sound all that bad, right? Let's practice that law. As somebody who helps to oversee three different businesses, a preschool, a coffee shop, and a rental facility here at the church, we have this thing on our books called accounts receivable. It's money people owe us. And it would absolutely wreck the fiber of our economy if every seven years we went, nah, you know, it's good. It's good. It's all good. So I started to think, what would I do if I were in this culture? Probably what I'd do is, if we got close to seven years, I'd stop lending money. I'd sort of cut my losses. I'd shut it down. I mean, generosity is for year one of the seven years, not year seven. It's interesting, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God sees me coming, and he sees you coming. And he says to the people, as they get ready to walk into the promised land, after, they've, after he's given this command, every seven years, zero out the accounts, he starts to see what people might start to do in response to that command, the loophole. Verse 7, he says, 
If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut down your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him, lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 9, take care, lest an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, an unworthy thought happens in your heart, and you say, so Jesus, or God is going to say, there's a way to look at the world that sees him in it, and there's a way to look at the world that doesn't. And we need to pay attention to the rhythms of our heart and the way that we see the people around us because he says there could be an unworthy or an, an disingenuous or an evil thought in your heart which will change the way you see the people around you. Here's the way he says it. The seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye looking grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing because it's so close to the canceling of debts which in some ways we'd go, that's just wise. And Jesus goes, no, that's just stingy. <laughs> you give him nothing and he should cry out against the Lord and you will be guilty of sin. See, if you go back and you read verses four through six, here's what you find. You find that as God gets ready to lead his people into the promised land, he promises them blessing and he promises them favor. And he promises them good. And his blessing and his favor and good is designed to cause them to open up their lives and their hearts, to change the way that they see the people around them so that they're not stingy, but they're generous. And what God says is, quote, if you and your eye looking grudgingly on your brother, how many of you have heard the term an evil eye? This is where we get it. We get it from Deuteronomy chapter 15. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to pick up this illusion and he's going to talk about it in regards to the way that we look at the world and the way that we look at our stuff. Look at what he says. He says, verse 22, chapter 6 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, or you could also translate that unified or whole, your whole body will be full of what? Light. The way that you see the world impacts your entire being. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you see the world as a dark place, as an evil place, as a wrong place, it's going to change the way you see everything. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that seeing God in the world changes the world you see. And this has been the drum he's been beating all throughout this section in the Sermon on the Mount. You go back and read it. Our last two messages have framed the way that we often do religious works to receive the applause of man, the way we pray in order to receive the applause of people. And at the end of every refrain, Jesus says this statement. After talking about giving, he says, your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. For talking about prayer, he's saying, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Verse 18, after talking about fasting, he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus essentially in this passage is asking, your father sees you in public and in secret. Do you see him? 
And there's two ways to see the world. There's a way of darkness. And there's also a way of light. Larry, our executive pastor, said these glasses look like something that would come about if Bono and Roy Orbison had a baby. <laughs> I'm going to be wearing them the rest of the message. You're welcome. There's two ways to see the world. We either see the world through a lens of light or we see the world through a lens of darkness. Let me, let me say it like this. Jesus wants us to have a different perspective on the world that we live in, one that's shaped not with a narrative of scarcity. You know what I mean by that? That it's possible to look at the world, and this is a dark way of looking at the world. And we essentially see the world as a pie, and it's divided in a certain amount of parts. And so if somebody else gets something good, it means that I didn't get it. If someone gets the job, that's one less job for me. If someone gets engaged, well, that's one less person on the market for me. If someone gets accepted to the school, well, well there's only so many spots available at the school. Here's what this is. This is a narrative of looking at the world where we see the world as a scarce place. It's what God was condemning in Deuteronomy chapter 15. He's going, no, no, no. God is present. God is good. God is here and he's blessing and he's giving favor. You've got to see it. See, you don't slip into a narrative of scarcity. Here's the way you can often see a narrative of scarcity show up in your life. Is it hard for you to celebrate when other people are blessed? When someone else gets the job, can you say, I'm really happy for you? Without in the back of your mind thinking, I'd be happier for me, <laughs> right? When someone gets accepted to the school without thinking, well, there's one less spot for me. Have you ever had somebody say to you when something good happened, they said to you something like, well, it must be nice to catch all the breaks. Here's what that is. It's a narrative of scarcity. There's only a limited number of joy and happiness and goodness and blessing and we're running out and because you got some of it, it means that I didn't. Luckily for us, there's another way of seeing the world. It's the way of seeing the world through what Jesus is going to call light or bright eyes. We see that God's at work. We see that love and joy and peace and grace are present in abundance. That this world is teeming with his goodness if we have the eyes to see it and the heart to align with it so that we can genuinely say to the people around us when something good happens to them, I'm really happy for you. So we can say to the churches around us when they grow and they explode and tons of people come to faith in their churches, we can genuinely as a church say, we are so happy that your church is exploding and growing without that check in our gut of going, well, I wish it was ours. When someone gets engaged, gets married, we can say, I'm really happy for you. I can remember when my first son was born and I held him in my arms for the first time and my heart just exploded. 
and immediately fell in love with that kid and knew that um, regardless of where he, what he did or where he went, that, that my heart would always be for him. We found out about a year, about his first birthday that we were having a second child, and my first thought was, I don't know if I can love another person as much as I love that kid. Any, any parent ever thought that? Right? It's hints of scarcity, isn't it? There's only so much of me to go around, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to love them as much as I love the first. Some of you are going, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> You're just, here's you, okay? Here's you. Do we see the world through a narrative of scarcity or abundance? And here, look up at me for a second. If you see the world through a narrative of scarcity, your life will be riddled with fear. It will be riddled with fear. But if we're able to embrace a Jesus perspective, an eye full of light, because this world is God-bathed, as Dallas Willard said, in a perfectly safe place for us to be, even when it feels unsafe. If we're able to grasp that perspective of life, instead of fear being our dominant narrative, we will actually be able to live a life of peace. And we all want that, don't we? So what Jesus goes on to do in this passage is he goes on to tease out for us what a life of trust, what a life of faith, what a life of kingdom, what a bright-eyed life looks like. And he does that by addressing the way that we treat our stuff. Here's what he says, verse 19. So do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Okay, just a quick time out. When you think treasure, think anything that you'd want to keep, anything that you'd want to protect, anything you feel like is going to add value or worth to your life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your what? Your what? Heart will be also. Your heart will be also. So what does it mean? What does it look like to have bright eyes, to have a perspective of the world that sees God in the world that changes the way that we see the world? So we operate in abundance, not scarcity. Here's what starts to happen. Our perspective always shapes our pursuit, Jesus says. And you're going to be pursuing one of two things. See, all of us are our treasure hunters. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a treasure hunter. Not like a pirate, you can say, arr, you're a treasure hunter. But you, you don't have to, you don't have to. But all of us are treasure hunters. We're all looking for things that we can build our life into, that will add value, that will add worth, that will add goodness to it, that will increase our enjoyment of the world around us. You do not know a person who is not hunting treasure. And what Jesus says is, is not that, that you can decide whether you're a treasure hunter or not. You are. The question is, what type of treasure are you searching after? And he says there's two types of treasure. You can tr search after treasure that's on earth or treasure that's epitomized by heaven. And here's what he means. He sort of defines it for us. He says earthly treasure, they have two things in common. 
The first thing that they have in common, earthly treasures, is that they all wear out. Like this weekend must have been universal garage sale month, wasn't it? I mean, I I drove through a number of different um, communities and saw Facebook posts, and I think that this weekend was just like, Jesus said you should have a garage sale on this weekend, and a lot of people did, right? And I started to think about all the stuff in my house. I think I started to think about this after my son jumped on our couch and broke it. (laughs) I started to think, all of the stuff in my house is going to end up in one of three places. Like, we have... What do you think, babe? Like two or three heirlooms that we might pass on to our kids? Maybe. Not even. Okay, not even. We are an Ikea family, right? There's no piece of furniture that's going to survive our kids, right? So there might be two or three heirlooms. My wife says less, okay? Um, So either that or we're going to, if it does survive this onslaught of my children, we'll sell it in a garage sale someday. Or it will end up in a landfill. Everything in my house, one of three areas. Everything in your house, one of three areas. And so Jesus says, listen, let's just step back from the chaos of accumulation and consumption and ask a few questions. Is it worth us pouring our lives into things that will not last. We were at Mount Hermon, like I mentioned, a few weeks ago. And on the very last night, they have this victory circle, they call it. It's a time where people stand up and they say what God has done during the week. And I was struck by by one man, a little bit older than me, but I found out that he had kids that were about my kid's age later on. And he stood up and he said, this is one of the first times our family has just taken time to be together. He said, my work pace is so crazy that one of my kids asked me this week, when you retire, will we be able to do more stuff like this? And you see, all of us can slip into this pattern. It's so easy. It's so natural, which is why Jesus wants to address it head on. He wants us to wrestle with it. Where am I putting my Life. What am I building my life into? Because if it's just stuff, eventually moths and rust are going to destroy it or a garage sale is going to have it. And he goes, well, there's a second option. Um, this isn't like encouraging Jesus, but he goes, or it might just get stolen. <laughs> You're welcome. Either way, his point, it's not worth it. And see, these are the things, the earthly treasures we often look to for two things, security and pleasure. And Jesus goes, you're not going deep enough because there's more. You don't long enough. As C.S. Lewis says, you're content by making mud pies at the ghetto when a vacation at the sea is being offered to you. Long for more. Long for more. And so what Jesus is more is, is he calls it heavenly treasure. And you can think of it in two ways. One, it's a, maybe a geographic location that the treasure is quote-unquote stored, but I think it's more helpful to recognize that what Jesus is talking about is not just throwing treasure up to heaven, but bringing the treasure of heaven down to earth. So the question is, what type of treasure is in heaven, right? So the God of the universe, 
who has everything that he could ever dream of, and if he doesn't have it, he just creates it. What does he treasure? Have you ever thought about that? What does God treasure? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, it says that God's portion, his treasure, is his people. What what does God treasure? God, God treasures people. I think for us to build a life that's grounded on treasure in heaven is to build a life around love of God and love of people. To build a life around communion with God, learning to live in the presence of God, which, by the way, is what you will be up to all of eternity, is to learn to live in his presence and enjoy his presence, not just when we get there someday, but so that we can enjoy it when we do get there. And so Jesus ends by this little, with this little mic drop, Jesus out, soundbite, and he says, where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. Whatever you're chasing, you're becoming like. The psalmist will write in Psalm 115 that those who make idols and those who worship idols, those who bow down to them, they eventually become like them. You become like whatever you chase. And so then Jesus goes on, and here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Who has a different word for that word money? Yeah, mammon, right. And mammon was the Aramaic term that Jesus spoke. And when Matthew translated Jesus' Aramaic Sermon on the Mount into Greek, he left this word as mammon. Why? Well, presumably because there was a lot of weightiness that surrounded this word. It didn't just mean money. It meant possessions, but it meant possessions that we often bow down to and look for purpose from. And so Matthew, when he writes his story of the life of Jesus, he leaves it like that. He leaves it like that. It's almost as though it was a God. And we make the same point by saying, well, the almighty dollar, right? Like, We're bowing down to it like the almighty God. (laughs) One comedian joked, he said, we joke about money because we are all too aware of its power. Money talks, he said, but what it mostly says to me is goodbye. (laughs) Here's Jesus' point. We always serve what we pursue. We always serve what we pursue. And so our perspective shapes our pursuit And our pursuit eventually becomes our master. Everybody has a master. There's no such thing as a masterless human being. You follow something. You bow down to something. The question is, is it something that's going to bring your life? Because your master will lead you of one of two places. Your master will either lead you into prison or it will lead you into freedom, but it will not do neither one of those things. How's that for double negative? It will do one of those two things. 
And so Jesus says, listen, if you have a perspective of this world, if you miss me in this world and you see this world through the lens of scarcity, all you're going to do is chase treasure that you can touch and see because you think it'll add security and value to your life. And you're going to chase after money because you feel like it's going to do something for you and it's going to become your master and you're going to bow down and you're going to worship it and you're going to lose out on the greater things in life. Just as an aside, Jesus is not down on saving. He's not down on retirement. He's not down on planning. He's just down on trusting your savings or trusting your retirement or trusting your planning. In 2008, the bottom fell out for many people. And what was revealed was, and maybe we've trusted in the wrong things. Jesus isn't down on any of those things. He just simply wants to say that there's a perspective of the world, seeing the world, seeing the world through the the light of the eyes that allows us not to see a world of scarcity, but to see a world of abundance. And when we see a world of abundance, we can chase after the Jesus-y, kingdom-y things in this life. And then when we chase after those things, God in heaven becomes our God. And our life is aligned with his heart and his way. Okay, we tracking? Just a quick time out. Let's just take a deep breath and try to think about, are there, is there any place that we see in our perspective scarcity instead of abundance? In our pursuit, trusting in earthly things rather than the ethos of heaven. Love of God, love of people. And have those things become our master. Everybody has a master. It's one of those two things. So which is it for us? So if you're going, hey, Jesus, that's really interesting, that's really great, but what do we do with this? He's like, I'm so glad you asked that question. Here's what we do with this. Keep reading, just keep reading, because here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, so in light of a different perspective that leads to a different pursuit that leads to a different master, he goes, therefore, I tell you, do not be what? Anxious. Anxious. Let's read this whole section and we'll come back and talk about it. About your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Let me just, you just need to answer the question. It's rhetorical, but answer it. Are you more valuable than the birds? Yes, you are. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Those who don't see God in the world... And therefore, 
changes the world that they see. The Gentiles, they seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Okay, let's stop there. There's times I read the Bible and I go, like, Jesus, are you just burying your head in the sand? Like, this, th- there's a lot that we could be worried about in this world. There's a lot of things that should maybe cause our hearts to go, man, God, I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. I did a little bit of study just in case you weren't worried when you walk in the door. Here's what some people are worried about. And you might go, well, thank you, Ryan. I didn't walk in worried. Now I'm worried, right? One of the main things people worry about is their health. Is it going to hold up? Another thing people worry about, finances. Is it going to work out? Things that cause worry in people's lives, stress from work or stress from school. Things that cause worry in people's lives are relationships or the death of a loved one. And so in Jesus' teaching, are we really just supposed to, therefore, do not worry? And we're supposed to go, okay. Like put that on our task list every morning and go, don't worry, check, done. What next? Is it really that easy? Is it that simple? See, to not worry or to worry is to be literally divided, to be pulled in different directions. It's in opposition to what Jesus talked about in being having a healthy eye. A healthy eye is unified. It sees God and it changes the way that they see the world. It just it sees him in everything and a worried eye is pulled in a bunch of different directions. I heard somebody say one time that worry is putting a down payment on a problem you never had. And so here's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that there's this progression, that your perspective shapes your pursuit and determines your master, and your master will always determine the health of your soul. And what he wants to teach us is how to live with what Edwin Friedman, a great leadership and and, um, psychologist, uh, author, passed away, but he wrote a book in the late 90s called A Failure of Nerve. And in it, he talks about being a non-anxious presence. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. Not this like pie in the sky, everything's going to turn out great mentality, but a settled conviction that even in the storms and trials of life, my God is present and he's here. And though the wrong seems oft so strong, he is the, what? Ruler yet. And see, what worry often expresses is not the conviction that God, though the wrong seems oft so strong, you are the ruler yet. what What worry really is, is a conviction that I need to, and you may want to write this one word down to epitomize and illustrate worry. It's I need to control everything around me. I need to control what people think of me. I need to control the future. I need to control where this thing goes. And the trouble, Jesus is going to talk about the trouble with worry, and we will in just a second too. But can I just point out how little you actually do have control over in your life? I mean, let me just illustrate it by one simple point. Every person in this room could get one phone call that could dramatically change their entire life. So, how much control do you really have? 
you're going, Paulson, I wasn't worried when I walked in, but I am now. (laughs) And what Jesus wants to do in this passage is not, is not give you more reason to worry. What he actually wants to do is point out how ridiculous worry actually is. And so he says, here's what you want to do. If you're feeling worried, here's the Jesus way of freeing your life from worry. He goes, well, why don't you do this? Just throw this out there. He says, why don't you, verse 26, look at the birds of the air? Why don't you just go outside and for a few seconds, look at the birds or get a bird feeder and have them come up to your window. Just call them to you and check them out. Here's what you'll find. What Jesus is not saying is just sit on your hands and hope for the best because birds, he could not have picked a busier animal. Birds work hard. They just don't worry. They work really hard. They just don't worry. Birds are way too dumb to worry. But hey, 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 we are way too smart to trust sometimes, aren't we? So he goes, hey, why don't you take a look and be more observant, actually, not less, more observant of the world that you live in. And Jesus is so intuitive here. He knows that when we fail to see God in the world and we see the world as a world of scarcity rather than abundance, it starts to shape our souls. Just a quick time out. Jesus is talking, and you can see this in a number of different places here, about the concerns of what we eat and what we wear, not if we eat and if we wear. It's an important distinction. But he says, hey, how about this too? Why don't, you, why don't you look at the lilies of the field? He says, verse 28, and consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not, they're not working so hard so that they can look so beautiful. What's going on? Well, the fertilizer of their heavenly father is causing them to bloom into something absolutely gorgeous. So he's talking about what we, not only, not only the way that we look at the world around us in these, this idea of in gathering and accumulating wealth, but he's also talking about our physical lives. And how much of our life is consumed with worry about our physical appearance? I wish, uh-oh, I think I'm going to go ski low on us here. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. I wish I had a, no one's with me. No one's. <laughs> and how many of you in wishing that you were taller actually grew? How many of you, and I'm speaking to myself here, how many of you who wish you had more hair on the top of your head actually saw it happen because you worried, right? (laughs) How many of you, because you wanted, wished you'd lose a little, worried about how much you weighed, lost weight? Me neither. So Jesus' teaching is so practical because here's what he wants to do. He wants to say two things to us. Worry is unnecessary. Your God knows what you need, he says. You have way more value than the lilies of the field, and he's taking care of them. He's going to take care of you. Worry pretends to be necessary, but it actually serves no purpose. None. So it's unnecessary. The second thing, it's also unhelpful. Jesus ends this, verse 34, by saying, listen. 
Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, but for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. It's as though he says, man, tomorrow might be terrible, but you can't do anything about it today. Thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. But really, he's saying, how's that working out for you? I think he's echoing what Corey Ten Boom so brilliantly put, where she said this, worry does not empty tomorrow of its trouble, it empties today of its strength. Edwin Friedman wrote in his, that same book, A Failure of Nerve, he said, a major criterion for judging the anxiety level of any society is the loss of its capacity to be playful. So we lose our capacity for strength, Ten Boom says. And, and um, Friedman says, we lose our capacity for joy. And Jesus says, yeah, look up at me. How's worry working out for you? It's not productive. So how about this? How about instead of worry, like what if you shaped your life around this settled confidence that in the good seasons and the bad, in the sunshine and in the rain, on the mountaintop and in the valley. My God is present. He knows what I need. He's my good shepherd, even when it stings and even when it's painful. Oh, hey, and just, this just in, what are my other options? What are my other options? That's what Jesus wants us to shape our lives around. So here, here is your other option. But seek first and that doesn't mean like chronologically put it above everything else, but, but seek in a unified manner. Seek the kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. The solution is not simply stop worrying. It's to redirect our lives and our vision and our mind as apprentices to Jesus, to a proper heart orientation that lends us to a different pursuit, that leads us to a different master, that eventually shapes a different kind of soul. If you figure your life to genuinely aim at the kingdom, love of God, love of people, the effective reign of Jesus in your life, in your home, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace. If you shape your life around that, the things you need to survive and thrive, Jesus says, will deliver themselves to you. So what does a life of non-anxious presence look like? Let's land the plane here. It means this. It means that we move from being anxious and pulled in a bunch of different directions to attentive. Like maybe this week you actually do go look at the birds and you do consider the lilies of the field. Maybe you do that. It'll shape your soul. And what if we weren't so consumed with the God of mammon that we had to hoard and scrape and claw because this world is a world of scarcity? But what if we actually saw the world as a world of light and abundance? You know what happened? We would be freed to be generous. What if you practice that this week? 
Hey, what if you went to your bank and just took out 60 bucks and you had it in small um, denominations of money and you just had it in your back pocket and this week you just looked for little ways to bless as many people as you could? Maybe you paid for a cup of coffee or maybe you bought a card and you you know how those cards, you can write on a card and then you can put it in the mail and somebody delivers that for you. You could do that. You could do that kind of thing. But what if we move from this position of I've got to hoard and scrape and claw to a position of generosity? And what if, what if we started to seek the kingdom? And instead of being consumers, which every ad on TV and every print ad you see in a magazine and everything you read is designed to make you a consumer of something, what if instead of being a consumer of more stuff, you started to be a steward? with your life, with your time, with your home, and your relationships, what if you started to be a steward? See, the reality, friends, is that an unshakable life is built on an immovable kingdom. And Jesus invites us to build our lives on that such On Monday afternoon, we're going to lead to the table here. On Monday afternoon, somebody from our church body, her name's Pamela, came in to see me. And um, she had just come from the doctor to try to figure out if she had cancer. That was on Monday. On Friday, she found out that she lost her job. And all the while, in the midst of all of that, her son's health is struggling. So she came in, stopped in my office, and we just spent some time praying together and said, you know what, ironically, Pamela, I'm, I'm teaching on, Jesus is teaching about being worried. And she said, I'm trying so hard to not be worried, but I'm just worried. And I started to ask the question, what do we do when we don't want to be worried, but we're worried? And so we spent some time praying and talked about, like, how, what does worry actually do? But I think that's the setting that we have to find our answer to what do we do with this text, right? What do we do with it? And here's what we do. We remember, we step back and we remember that this is a God-bathed world, that he's the Lord, that he's the lover, that he's the shepherd, that he's the king. And it does not mean that everything, hear me on this, it doesn't mean it's like a genie in a bottle and everything just turns out the way that we hope it will. It doesn't. But it means that he's present, and it means that he walks with us, and it means that he's good, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And so when we can say, God, I see you in this world, it changes the world that we see, and we give him space to move and to work and to breathe life into things that are dead. It's a disposition, not of control, but of trust, of trust. And as we come to the table this morning, would you come to the table with bright eyes? Would you come knowing that Jesus knows exactly what you need and your greatest need, he's already met. We come to celebrate the fact that he calls us sons and daughters, that he forgives us, that he loves us, that he welcomes us into his 
arms because he's gracious and good and he knows how to meet a need. And so we come hungry, asking to be filled. We come naked, longing to be clothed. We come with our hands open, trusting that God, you're at work. This is a world of abundance. Help us see it and live in it in such a way. Amen? Amen. So Jesus, we do. We come trusting, we come loving, and we come knowing that you're here. So give us bright eyes as we come. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just a few instructions for you. You can leave your row to the left. And if you'd come all the way around and enter back into your right, that would be great. As the people in front of you step up and step into line, will the rows in back just follow in suit? But you can wait for a few seconds to let the line die down so we don't do what everybody does on a plane and just stand up and wait. Um, I'd invite you to take the bread as you so feel led.